Ooh. Rowdy bunch. I like it. I like it. My name is Joe. I'm one of the pastors here. I work with uh, the college and young professionals. If, you have, if I haven't met you before, I probably sound like a broken record if you've been here before. But um, uh, the ministry we have here at the Greenhouse is called, I mean, at New Hope is called the Greenhouse. And um, yeah, so if you're in that demographic, you consider yourself young, we'd love to meet you. Um, if you're older, I'd still love to meet you. And uh, I'm older, um, if you haven't noticed. Uh, so anyway, I'm so glad you joined us this morning. What a great weekend. What a great chance to, to learn more about what it means to follow Jesus. And uh, so would you pray with me before we dive in? God, we um, just agree that you are so good. And there's never been anyone like you. There will never be anyone like you again. That how you revealed yourself to us in the person of Jesus we're still just overwhelmed by that, that the reality of who you are. We see in Jesus the exact representation of the Father. And so we know who you are because Jesus has made it clear to us who you are. And so um, we thank you for that. We thank you that today we get to study and, and read your word and we want to be people who are changed because of the things we're going to learn. And so we pray for the grace God, to, uh, to experience that today. And um, we look to you during this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I bet I know something about you that you're really good at. Like you would even, somebody would say you're a natural in this area. Like if you had to take a strength finders test, you would score off the charts. Like this is something that would be right in your wheelhouse. And as you grew up, you grew stronger in this area of your life. And if left unchallenged, you would continue to make incredible progress, like by leaps and bounds. What do I know that you and I excel at? We're naturals at seeking our own interests. We're really good at thinking about ourselves, focusing on self. Groucho Marx uh, would agree. He, if you remember one of his famous lines, he said, well, enough about me. Let's talk about you. What do you think about me? David Foster Wallace put it like this in a commencement speech he gave. He said, here's just one example of the total wrongness of something I tend to be automatically sure of. Everything in my own immediate experience supports my deep belief that I am the absolute center of the universe. The realest, most vivid, and important person in existence. We rarely think about this sort of natural, basic self-centeredness because it's, it's so socially repulsive. But it's pretty much the same for all of us. It's our default setting, hardwired into our boards at birth. Think about it. There's no experience you have, have had that you aren't the absolute center of. The world as you experience it is there in front of you or behind you, to the right or left of you, on your TV or your monitor and so on. Other people's thoughts and feelings have to be communicated to you somehow, but your own are so immediate, urgent, Real. I love the way Eugene Peterson, he nailed it when he wrote this. He said, 150 years ago, Alexis de Tocqueville visited America from France and wrote this. He said, each citizen is habitually engaged in contemplation of a very puny object, namely himself. And then he wrote this, in a century and a half, things have not improved. For all the diverse and attractive, buzzing and mysterious reality that is everywhere evident, no one and no thing interrupt people more than momentarily from obsessive preoccupation with themselves. And if you're still not convinced, it, it was widely reported that in 2015, more people died from taking selfies than from shark attacks. 
We are a people who are fixated on self. And today we're going to be stretched yet again to move away from self and toward Jesus. And we're in the middle of a side series here at New Hope where we've been studying and looking at Paul's letter to this church in Philippi. And the theme that we've seen over and over again is one related to joy, a joy that can be experienced independent of life's circumstances, a joy that comes from knowing Jesus and having our focus be on him rather than on ourselves, a joy that happens regardless of trials and suffering or abundance and blessing. And today Paul is going to highlight two individuals who have made their lives so much not about themselves that we're going to feel challenged just being in their presence. So if you have, uh, this is kind of how we're going to roll today. We're going to have like two movements of thought where we're going to look at these two lives, these lives of two men who Paul holds up as people who've sought the interests of Jesus. And so if you have a Bible or web-enabled device, you can flip or tap your way to Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 19. This is what Paul wrote. This is what we read. He penned these words. He said, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. And so here's what we're going to see in Timothy's life. We're going to see Paul highlight three areas in his young protege's life. Starting in verse 20, Paul said he had no one else like him because he was genuinely concerned for the welfare of the Christians there in, in Philippi. That, that phrase, I have no one like him, the, the Greek is this word isopsikos. And it means like-minded or of equal spirit. I love the way Warren Wiersbe uh, used the phrase. He used the phrase like-souled, S-O-U-L-E-D. Paul essentially is saying that he and Timothy are exactly on the same page. This is like an extraordinary statement, right? To be partnered with someone in this kind of way is such a blessing. This is why Paul said he had no one like Timothy. It wasn't that there weren't other committed followers of Jesus. It was more that Timothy and Paul were like-minded or like-souled. I mean, th this would mean that they would have to be incredibly aligned. Of all the people Paul knew and worked with, he only had one, like Timothy. Now, I used to think that when Paul said this, everyone else in the church was lame, and then Timothy kind of stood out. But knowing the nuance of that word, isopsikos, really changes things. Timothy was like-souled with Paul. Paul says that he was genuinely concerned for your welfare. So the first area that Paul highlights is this, is this idea of burden. It's this idea of burden. Timothy cared about people. He cared about the overall condition of the people in this church. He, as he walked through his day, his mind was on them. You can imagine that a person who has a burden for others spends time praying for the people that are around him or her. And so to Timothy, I would have to think that pastoring and ministry and leadership was far more than a job. It was a passion. These people were his friends. Like he, he, he I would guess that he knew what made these people tick. He knew what their struggles were and they knew his as well. 
And this isn't the only place that we see burden in the New Testament. We see it in at least two places. Jesus had an incredible burden for people. If you were to go to Matthew chapter nine, you would see him talk about this burden. He, it says he saw the crowds and he had compassion for them because they were helpless and harassed like sheep without a shepherd. And so a large part of having a burden is seeing. The challenge that many people have with developing a burden is that in their lives for others is that so often we, we have a difficult time seeing because we're so focused on ourselves. It's impossible to see others when we're fixated on self. And so the other place that jumps out to me related to burden is where Paul writes this. He says, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who is made to fail or to fall and I am not indignant? So having a burden means you feel the weight. Paul felt the weight of the struggle those in these churches had with sin. And so you feel and you see. You don't turn away. You experience empathy towards others, especially as it relates to their struggle and their suffering. And Jesus saw the needs of people, and especially as it related to their lostness. And Paul felt the weight of people who struggled with sin. And so how about you? Do you see and do you feel? Part of what I think we're seeing here is God-like qualities that as we grow in Jesus, they need to be more present in our lives. And so if you don't feel a burden, why is that? Why don't you feel a burden for both those inside the church and outside? Because the heart of God, of our God, it's, he's full of compassion and burden for people. Maybe you need to pray that God would create a greater burden in you for others. Maybe as part of that prayer, you need to ask God to help you to see and to feel the weight. And that's the first area that we see in young Timothy's life. It's this area of burden. Well, what else? Paul says next that he had no one like Timothy because Timothy sought the interests of others. And so this is the second area. Timothy looked out for the interests of Jesus. He said they all seek their own interests, but not Timothy. He had his mind on the interests of Jesus. And when I read this, I hear an echo. And I hope I'm not the only one that hears the echo. Do you hear that echo? The echo would be back to the early part of Philippians chapter 2 that we looked at a, a little while ago. And Paul wrote this. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so Timothy, get this, Timothy is Paul's illustration for what he wrote earlier. Remember, one of the other themes that we see in, in Philippians is this idea of being of the same mind, being of one mind, and so Paul wrote that he had no one like Timothy who sought the interest of Jesus. And I think, when I think about the church today, I think Paul's right on. I mean, think about your life. Do like an inventory of how you spend your time and your money. How much of your life is about you? If you're honest, it's way more than you want to admit, right? 
See, when I read God's word, I don't see God's word as soft. This stings. This stings me. I feel this. Every person battles with self, right? We wrestle with life being about us. I mean, think about your social media. Your social media is all about you. And then think about how much time you do this or, or this or this. How much of your life would you have to give away if you didn't, you know, if you it just simply removed the social media from your like hourly routine or however that routine sets up in your life. The bottom line is we seek our own interests. I'm reading this book and, and there's a story about this guy named Will who was worth millions, but essentially gave it up so that he could move to work with uh, uh, this group of people, this Muslim Kansu group, the little people group in China. His life motto was this. He says, say no to self and yes to Jesus every time. Will sought the interests of Jesus. What if you and I adopted that motto? Well, what would our lives look like? Well, I bet you your initial thought is that maybe your life would be less enjoyable. But I disagree. See, Jesus promises that we would find our truest, deepest, most fulfilling life when we lose it for him and for the gospel. And I see this as a major tension theme in the New Testament. Will I be okay if I let go of living for myself and pursue the interests of Jesus? What will happen if I give up what I want and embrace the heart of God for my life? Will life become lame? Because all I've ever known is self. It feels so familiar. It's like my security blanket. But what if you let go of self and you find something way more fulfilling, like who you were created to be? Before we move on, I think it'd be really good for us to look at what it actually means to look at the interests of, of, of Jesus. You know, if it, it would be one thing if Jesus or the authors of Scripture were vague about the heart of God. But you, we know that's not the case. You don't have to guess what's on God's heart and mind. You don't have to wonder what causes his pulse to quicken. And so here's a quick survey of what, of what matters to Jesus. Six quick thoughts. The first one is this. Jesus said that he wants us to love God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And then the second one he said was like that. He said, we should we want us to love people. And so he said, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And then the third one that he, he talked about was that he, he wanted us to, to, uh, to obey him. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey me. And then the fourth one is that we're to replicate the passion that God has for the lost. Jesus said that his goal, his desire when he came to earth was to seek and to save that which was lost. And the fifth one, Jesus wants us to pay attention to and meet the needs of the world. In Matthew 25, he said that whatever we've done for the least of these, we've done to him. And then in number six, at the end of the day, Jesus wants all of your life to glorify God. And if you had to condense all of this down, you could simplify things to say that the goal of life is to move away from self and toward the heart and mind of God. And Paul says that's exactly what Timothy was all about. 
Again, so much so that they were like sold. Paul ends the section by writing this. He says, but you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. Well, the gospel is this. God the Son, the creator of everything, became Jesus the man. He, he walked amongst us, right? He, it says that he set up his tent in our neighborhood. He made his dwelling with us. And then he lived a perfect life. He showed us what it was like to be fully human, fully alive, like what we were created to be. He had perfect union with God. He walked in holiness. There was no sin in him. And then he allowed the religious authorities to nail him to a cross between two hardened criminals. And in that whole kind of, in the death on the cross, it was like God was taking a sacrificial lamb and, and putting it to death for the sin of all people. He, Jesus said he was the, the lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. And so for anyone who would, who would believe in him, who would trust in him, who would, who would put their faith in him, who would say, I want what you have, he would make them a child of God. So the idea was Jesus took all of our sin on himself, gave us his righteousness, changed our eternal destinies, changed everything about us here in this life. That's what the gospel is all about. And so what it would mean to be a minister of the gospel is that you take that message to the world around you. You like love and serve the people in your neighborhood. You love and serve the people in your home. You love and serve the people anywhere around you. You're thinking about how can I build a bridge between what's true about who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus and then where this person's at. Now, it could be even expanded when you think about the ministry of the gospel to think about how do we help each other walk in the gospel as people who follow Jesus. In other words, how does the gospel apply to our lives now that we've already begun to, to follow Christ and so as we think about Timothy's life, we have to pause to do a little eval, a little spiritual inventory. Am I moving more toward Jesus and others in my life, or is my life primarily about me? It's super hard for me to think about as well. Like, I mean, I, I just had these questions. I said, where in my life do I tangibly serve others? Where am I consciously laying my life down for people? Where am I willingly being, this is a hard word, inconvenienced for the sake of others? Am I seeking the interest of Jesus or I just, do I just do what I want to do? Because I want to do it. Because life's all about me. I pretty much can guarantee you that in the next couple of days, my wife's going to look at me with that look that says, you just talked about this. Maybe it's time to, to do it. And I'm gonna be like, yeah, I know I'm selfish. I need help, right? That's why we need a savior. The application points for what we're talking about are almost endless. Like, I mean, think about this. You're literally surrounded by people. You're surrounded by people right here who have all kinds of needs. This is a very needy group. You have people in your neighborhood, in your workplace, you're surrounded by people. They have needs, opportunities to serve. In, in your home, I'm guessing most likely that you're not the only person in your home. You're surrounded by people who need help. 
What if you thought on a daily basis, what can I do today to make my life about Jesus and others? What if that was your prayer? How can I lay my life down for the sake of the gospel? Okay, so we're going to make a pretty hard transition right now. We just started talking about Timothy's life. We walked through all that. Now we're going to talk about Epaphroditus' life. This is like Paul's uh, second example of someone who sought the interests of Jesus. And this is what Paul writes about Epaphroditus. You ready? Okay, we're going to do this. He says this, I've thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother, and, and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him and not only on him, but on me also. Lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I'm all the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. And so here's how the story goes. Paul's in this prison in Rome, and, and this church sends Epaphroditus to Paul with this care package. Now, most likely the care pa package wasn't a bunch of like trinkets. Probably it, it was mostly a financial care package to help Paul. And we're going to look at that more in Philippians 4 when we get there in a couple years. <laughs> the total distance from Philippi to Rome had to have been a, a bit daunting. Like we're not told exactly how Epaphroditus completed this journey, but we are told that the journey would have taken somewhere between 700 and 1,200 miles to complete, depending on the route he had taken. So 700 miles from East Lansing puts you at just north of Atlanta. 1,200 miles puts you basically right at the Magic Kingdom. And so how long this journey took would vary based on like, did the person walk? Did they have an animal that was helping them? Uh, were they traveling by sea or by land? And what the weather was like. If it was like Michigan weather, just forget about it, right? So scholars think it would have taken, uh, it could have taken as little as six weeks to have as much as three months to have made this journey again, depending on weather. Can you imagine walking to Atlanta from here? Or to Florida? I mean, that, that's crazy to think about, right? Well, it gets even crazier, I think. So while he's visiting Paul, he got sick and almost died, probably because he was exhausted from the travel. But by the grace of God, he recovered, and Paul sent him back to the church with what we now have in our New Testament, the letter to the church at Philippi. Now, we just looked at Timothy's life. Now, we're going to do a quick kind of survey, survey of Epaphroditus' life. We're going to look at four things in his life. And you're feeling nervous right now. You're, you're thinking, I thought we were bringing the plane in for a landing. Don't worry. We're going to get there. My goodness. So first, Paul describes Epaphroditus as a, a balanced Christ follower. He says, Epaphroditus, my brother and my fellow worker and my fellow soldier. And so first, he said that Epaphroditus was his brother. Now, when you become a Christian, you become a part of the family of God. And the church, again, is to be way more than just a Sunday gathering. It's meant to be a family. Speaking of family, I, this is like a quick public service announcement. We have big plans for New Hope. We, we want to expand the small group family, the small group family, uh, so that more and more people here can learn and experience what the church is meant to be. 
And so if you're in a spot where you want to pursue that, if you're like, I'd love to consider that, you can email me, joe at nhchurch.com. I would love to talk to you more about that. If you read the New Testament, a lot of what you see there can only be accomplished in smaller communities. What we have here on the weekend is great, but it's only part of what church life is all about. We miss out on so much if we aren't connecting in smaller contexts where we can walk alongside each other and help each other to grow up to maturity. Now, Paul didn't just mention Epaphroditus as a brother. He also called him his fellow worker. And so after we become Christians, we not only become part of the family of God, but we also are enlisted or uh, are involved in, with Jesus in, in now becoming workers in what he's doing. And so the reality is some Christians, they just spend all of their time with other Christians. And yet Jesus was really clear that there is a world around us that's desperate, desperate for the gospel. And Epaphroditus got this. He shows us that we are to be serving both inside and outside the church. And I don't know about you, but I meet a lot of Christians who are disenfranchised with the church. And sometimes I wonder if part of the issue is that they've never gotten a chance to experience more than just this. They've never got a chance to experience what it means to labor for Jesus. See, I, I hear people say that they, they want the deeper teaching and, and they blame their discouragement and their disenfranchisement with this. But the deepest teaching of the Bible isn't necessarily more knowledge. It's doing what the Bible says we're to do. The deepest teaching of the Bible is application. It would be better to know one thing and do it than to know 10 things and not do them. And so part of the application is moving toward being a laborer in the gospel. And the whole idea of being a, Christ, a Christian worker isn't for a select few. This is the call for all y'all. You lay your life down for others. We want new hope to be full of laborers people who are spending their life for the sake of the gospel, again, inside and outside the church. I don't know where it, where it happened, but somewhere along the way, the church got a, the screwed up perspective that somehow the pastors are the ones that do ministry and the rest of the church just passively sits and listens. But this is not God's design for the church. He wants pastors to equip the church so that there are literally thousands and tens of thousands of people who are doing ministry. Okay, so Epaphroditus wasn't just a brother and a fellow worker. He was also a fellow soldier. So the church is a family and a body, but, the, but it, we also learned that the church is actually an army. You ever thought about the church as an army? There's a war going on all around us in the unseen. And that war is primarily being fought over the, the hearts and the minds of, yep, of men and women. And we don't have a, a lot of time to dig into this really deeply, but the Bible is very clear that the whole world is under the control of the devil. I don't have these verses on the screen, so you just have to listen, but we see this in the New Testament. It says in Colossians 1, he, Jesus, has delivered us from the, do the domain of darkness, and he's transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption 
the forgiveness of sins. In other words, at one point, you were over here under the domain of darkness, and Jesus ripped you out of that and brought you into another kingdom, his kingdom. In another place, we read this. We, we, we read the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And so the church is supposed to be engaged in this spiritual war. So, how does, uh, so what does a soldier do? Well, I think at least part of it is we watch over the other soldiers in the army that we're a part of. We, we like care about each other. We, we, we're aware of each other. How are the people around me doing? And at the same time, we're prepared and ready to fight. Soldiers also know who they are fighting and they know what their mission's all about. So again, as we look at Epaphroditus' life, we have to ask ourselves the question, have we embraced the reality that we are fellow soldiers? Like it or not, you're in a war. Like I didn't sign up for this, you didn't sign up for this, but this is the reality. You were born into a world that's at war. The primary war exists in the spiritual realm. And so we don't fight against other people, but we fight against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Well, how do we do that? We put on the armor that God has given us in the truths of the gospel. And then we learn this book really well. And we learn, we, we meditate it, we, we memorize it, and we learn to apply it. And we learn to use it as an offensive weapon to fend off attacks. And then we hold out the gospel as much to the people around us. So a few closing thoughts about Epaphroditus. He also expressed a burden for people. You see this right here in verse 26. He says, for, Paul wrote this, for he has been longing for you all. And so he, like Timothy, felt the weight for these people. And then the final thought I had is, I love this little quote from gotquestions.org. And it's about Epaphroditus' life. It says this, Epaphroditus' name is of pagan origin. It means belonging to Aphrodite. I, you might even hear that in the name Epaphroditus. But Epaphrodite was the goddess of love and fertility. And so the name of the goddess is actually incorporated into, into the name Epaphroditus. Such is the power of the gospel that a man is set free from dead paganism to serve the living God. When Aphrodite, Epaphroditus, excuse me, received the gospel, he was belonging to Jesus. And the idol had no more claim on him, regardless of his name. His new birth trumped his birth name. I love it. I love it. Both of these men, Timothy and Epaphroditus, moved away from living for themselves. And instead of self, they sought the interests of Jesus. They became Paul's illustration for chapter two. They traded the dead pursuit of self for the joy and life that comes from living for Jesus, which includes pursuing the things that God loves. And Timothy and Epaphroditus both were people of burden. They both were burdened for the sake of others. They saw and they felt the weight. They laid their life down so that Jesus could be lifted up. They both sought the interests of others. Both embraced 
being workers for the sake of the gospel. And so the question that always stands before us as we close out our time is this, what will you do as a result of what you've heard? Will you embrace the gospel, which is the opposite of selfish? Jesus laid his life down for you. Jesus was all about others. How can we keep making progress in the faith in these areas? How about this? How about if you go home today and on your fridge, you just put that quote by will. Say no to self and yes to Jesus every time. What if you make that your prayer and you pray that for me too because I need help? What if we moved in that direction as a community together? The bottom line is this. The self-life won't move you and I toward joy. But the surrendered life will. Let's pray. God, I'm just so thankful that you came to open our eyes and open our hearts to see what we were meant to be. I mean, ultimately to know you, but even that you would help us to realize that the, the truest, most fulfilling life that we could have would be complete surrender to you. That the more we pursue you, the more that we're gonna find who we were created to be. God, we got it all screwed up in our world. Father, we need your help to just see more clearly and ultimately to move away from ourselves. And we just want, we want the joy that comes from knowing you. And so we, we do pray that you would help us to say no to self and yes to Jesus every time. And to help us to become people who are moving in, in that path, in that trajectory. We need your help. We just cry out to you for that. We know that we can't do this just on our own. And so we uh, just thank you for your love, your, your desires for us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. I hope you have a great afternoon.